strange stories of peculiar people and extraordinary events throughout history. This is Notorious Narratives. Welcome to Notorious Narratives. I'm Jen. And I'm Robin. And tonight on Notorious Knowledge, Jen. Yes. Did you know that from pretty much, I don't know, 1890s to the 1930s, people would travel the country and pay a fee to watch locomotives crash into one another? (laughs) I mean, no. Did you know that? But, But I would pay for it now. So locomotives crashed head on. I mean, about... not with people on them. No, no, okay. no, 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 they're empty. I mean, but... I love to like watch the cars get squished and things like that. Like it's so satisfying. Apparently, so I, I get the. Yeah. Apparently locomotive crashes in their shows was before the whole demolition derby thing happened. Instead of using automobiles, they used giant locomotives. I love it. So until the 1930s, staged train wrecks were very popular and even at fairs and festivals across the U.S., long before anyone ever even thought of wrecking any other type of vehicle. They were like, well, we have these giant massive trains. Let's collide them at 100 miles an hour and see what happens. Did they did they use like trains that they were going to decommission or something? I think so. I mean, yeah. clearly, because yeah. they're like expensive. And I saw photos on uh, online and there were the old ones with the giant like um, steam whistles on top and everything. The steam, steam yeah, engines. Just, yeah. One of the first stage train wrecks was done in 1895 by a railroad equipment salesman named A.L. Streeter in Ohio. That's typical. Ohio. There's Feel- nothing going on there. That feels right. So the wreck used the same formula that nearly all of the other staged uh, train wrecks would follow for the next 40 years. He was an innovator. Yes. Organizers would lay a stretch of track, usually anywhere from 1,800 feet to a mile long, and then get two old steam locomotives and put them at either end of the track facing each other and then let them go and people will pay a fee to go and see it. Let them rip. How much did it cost, Robin? No idea. Was it a nickel? I bet it was a nickel. I'll pay a nickel. When they got to the go-ahead, the engineers would pull the throttles back as far as they could and so they can jump off of the locomotives. So they pull it back. and Yeah, they, it's like a giant chicken. Yeah, it's like They jump out. And they jump out. It's a giant game of chicken. In Waco, Texas, it was known as Crash at Crush. On September 15th, people began to arrive at Crush aboard other trains that would steam into uh, the town every few minutes. By 4 p.m., more than 40,000 people had arrived, far more than Crush's original estimate, making Crush the second largest city in Texas, at least for the next few hours. While Crush was perhaps the most well-known train wrecker, one man turned it into a career. Joe Connolly staged more than 70 wrecks and destroyed at least 146 locomotives between 1896 and 1932, he even earned the nickname Head On Joe. So this is before all of the fun stuff that we see now of like crashing and like monster trucks. Yeah, exactly. And demolition Derby. Exactly. Hey man, I totally would have paid to see it. Me too, if it was a nickel. I bet it was a nickel. Connolly, Head On Joe, went to the state fair in Des Moines and offered to put a crash on for $5,000. That initial price was a bit too steep for the board, but he came back with a more acceptable offer of $3,000 plus a cut of the ticket sales. The board agreed, and on September 9th of 1896, a week before the infamous crash at Crush, Connolly held his first staged wreck. About 5,000 people paid 50 cents each to sit in the grandstand to watch a show, and thousands more stood along the fence outside. The wreck was a success, and both Connolly and the fair made a profit. So we were off tenfold. It is ten times more than a nickel to see it. I don't know if I would have paid two quarters. 
I mean, I did pay $500 to go to WrestleMania, so maybe maybe I would have. So, yeah, I thought that was really, really cool. 40 I mean, years, I'm... 40 years worth of locomotive demolition. America's favorite pastime. <laughs> Train car demolition derby, everybody. <laughs> Don't worry about head on Joe. I'm sure he's just fine. Oh, he's fine. He, he I mean, long money. dead, but fine. Yeah. Made, made money, had fun. He made his money. He's good to go. He knew how to pull that throttle and jump out quick. All right, everybody. Don't forget to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notorious narratives where you can get two new episodes every month and also you can get our episodes three days early each week um, if you become a patron plus we've got some fun swag uh, coming your way we have buttons and stickers and now we have tote bags for our patreons who they are, are pretty the- cool and pretty sturdy yeah they definitely hold up yeah. they're a pretty decent quality mm-hmm. all right robin are you all ready? Maybe. You're ready? Like, strap in? Get get in there? No. What? <laughs> I didn't say strap it on. I said strap in. All right. Are you, you know, ready, I'm ready for I'm a ready. story that I'm going to tell you? I'm going to tell you the story of William Morgan and the Freemasons. <gasps> oh, I love a good Freemason story. Or oh. how a hustler created America's first third party. Even better. Dun, dun, dun. So no one knows exactly. So I feel like I can't really tell you a story about the Freemasons without talking about the Freemasons a little bit. They're they're a character in the story. They're not the whole story, but I feel like I should give you a little background on them just to kind of, you know, make you comfy. Yeah. Just get in there. Please. Yeah. So no one knows exactly when the Freemasons started. They are known as the Masonic fraternity, the Freemasons or Masons. I love it. The most predominant theory is that the group arose from the stonemasons guilds of the middle ages. Now, One might ask, what is a stonemason? Well, I'm going to tell you. So a stonemason is an individual who builds stone structures. They cut, prepare, and build using various types of stone. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we're talking pyramids. We're talking marble. We're talking, you know, beautiful edifices in Italy and all throughout Europe. And these people got together and they created this guild of sorts of people who do this job. The language and the symbols used in the fraternity's rituals come from the Middle Ages so the oldest document that makes reference to Masons is the Regius Poem, printed in 1390, which was a copy of an earlier work, which leads you to believe that they had to have been around before 1390. Mm-hmm. In 1717, four lodges in London formed the first Grand Lodge in England, and records from that point on are much more complete. Do you know there was a lodge... About five minutes away from here. Yes, I do. Our very good friend is a Freemason. I know. I drive by it all the time. I'm like, yes. It's like, I'm like, oh, Sam, one year. One year they'll allow women, right? One year. Well, but then there's the five stars, right? The five stars is the women's Freemason. So I am not going to talk at all about any real conspiracy theories to do mm-hmm. with Masons. I'm not going to get involved with the iconography. This is a super specific story. Say that for another day. So here's the thing. The conspiracy theories surrounding the Masons, if you look deeply into almost any of them, you can figure out that none of oh, them are yeah. really true. Oh, yeah, totally. So, but they're always fun to just talk about, though. Yeah, they're fun to chat about. But, you know, here at Notorious Narrows, I feel like we kind of deal in fact. We try to, you know, make sure that we look up our sources and have, you know, facts to back our stories up rather than, you know, I would love to tell you. All the fun Freemason stories about like Satanism and sacrifices Mm -hmm. and conspiracies of power throughout the ages. But, you know, I'm going to tell you a true story 
about the Freemasons within 30 years. So from 1717, we have like the big uh, Freemasons group is really set up in England. And within 30 years from that, the fraternity really spread to Europe and the American colonies. Freemasonry became very popular in colonial America. George Washington was a Freemason. Benjamin Franklin served as head of the fraternity in Pennsylvania, as did Paul Revere and Joseph Warren in Massachusetts. So we're talking some heavy hitters in colonial America, a lot of the structure of America, the real backbone of our constitution, our freedom from England really lies on the back of the Freemasons' ideals. Other well-known Masons uh, involved in the founding of America included John Hancock, John Sullivan, Lafayette, Baron Frederick von Steuben, Nathaniel Green, and John Paul Jones. Another Mason, Chief Justice John Marshall, shaped the Supreme Court in its present form. So members of the Freemasons eventually played a pivotal role in the formation of the United States. 13 of the 39 signatures on the U.S. Constitution belong to Masons. Yeah. So they're really deeply entrenched. And as the centuries kind of go on, they just get more and more powerful. So over the centuries, Freemasons have developed into a worldwide fraternity emphasizing personal study, self-improvement, and social betterment via uh, individual involvement and philanthropy. So that is one thing that well-known throughout history that they are very community-driven, and they give a lot to those in need in their area. So no matter what we talk about here, like it should not go without saying that their good deeds are not noticed. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are, rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know. Try like, to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to <laughs> podcasts on. Yeah, podcast, your, homecasts. Your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. So during the 1700s, the organization really felt responsible to spread the ideals of the Enlightenment, which um, ideals like the dignity of man, the liberty of the individual, the right of all persons to worship as they choose, and the formation of democratic governments and the importance of public education. So even our public education system is really sort of um, an idea that comes from the Freemasons. And while they talk about that idea of worshiping as you choose, as long as you're not Catholic they're not into Catholics. You can't be an atheist and you can't be Catholic. As long as you're Protestant of some sort, you're welcome. Hmm. Come on in. Masons supported the first public schools in Europe and in America. During the 1800s and the early 1900s, Freemasonry grew dramatically. At that time, the government had provided no real safety net for people. So the Masonic tradition of founding orphanages, homes for widows, and homes for the aged provided the only security many people knew. So they were kind of the social security system for communities. All right, now we're going to get into the story. So here we are. We're in New York. Not New York City, but New York State. Like the very far west side of New York State. Buffalo, Niagara Falls. Yeah. We're talking like almost Canada. New York State. The year is 1826. 
This is where we meet William Morgan. So William Morgan is a character. He is the kind of guy that is either awesome or a scumbag, depending on who you're talking to. It's every article I looked up, every every little entry that you have written about him. It's either a friend of his who's like, he was an awesome dude, or it's somebody oh. who didn't like him who's like, oh, he's a scumbag and a gambler. Oh, I like him or he's a dick. Yeah, there's like no in between with this guy. So he was born in 1774 in Virginia. He moved to Canada in 1821 where he operated a brewery. Yes. Yes. After a tragic fire destroyed that brewery, he moved his family and so he was married with two children and he moved them all to Rochester, New York. He didn't stay there all too long. And then he moved to Batavia, um, New York. And this is where he came to live in infamy. Here, he worked as a bricklayer and a stonecutter. In varying accounts, he is historically remembered as an ill-tempered, heavy drinker, gambler, and exaggerator. His tendency to exaggerate may be substantiated, at least in one particular claim that he made to many people. He told a lot of people that he had been in the War of 1812, where he had served as a captain in the Virginia militia. He was born in 1774? 1774, yep. So right age. Could have certainly been. Though several men named William Morgan are listed as serving in the Virginia militia, none of them achieved the rank of captain. So maybe he was in there and he's just exaggerating about his Do rank. Do you think he was too old? I feel like he was a little bit on the old yeah, side. Yeah, he was right. like in his late 40s, early 50s kind of a thing. No, for, for 26, war? 38. Well, I think at that point they wanted anyone and anyone. Yeah, possible. I mean, and I think if you were older, maybe you would have been given a higher rank and been like, oh, well, you know, you're not quite not so like expendable. Not like the line kind of person. But, but I don't. But still, I'm not 100% sure. I think, that yeah, I think it's true. He might have he might have been too old. He may have been involved, but he certainly wasn't a captain because there were no captains named William Morgan. <laughs> so regardless, he is definitely lying about some piece of it. You might be asking yourself, what does William Morgan have to do with this story about the Freemasons? How do these things go together? Well, I'm going to tell you right now. Morgan claimed to have been made a master mason while he was in Canada and then briefly attended a lodge in Rochester. And it was there in 1825 that Morgan received the Royal Arch Degree at Leroy's Western Star Chapter Number 33, having declared under oath that he had pre- received the previous six degrees that preceded it. So so I'm sorry. So he got his... So in the Freemasons, you have um, certain degrees yeah. and you have to do certain works to get to the next degree. Mm-hmm. So he claimed when he got to Rochester that he had already received already. six previous degrees. So he was ready to get this Royal Arch degree. Did he, he have was... any paperwork or anything? So here's a funny story. So you asked if he had any paperwork. Yeah. So here's the thing. He was definitely illiterate, as were many of the Freemasons of the day. That's why they supported school so much. And that's also why they used secret handshakes and secret and passwords and symbology and symbol, yeah. rather than written documents. They just, you know, they were they weren't necessarily all illiterate, but certainly outside of like those who are, you know, major players in the American government who are the drafters of the Constitution. So do you think that like anything Canadian wise, though, would not really be? transferable they didn't seem to really care too much about it have happening happening in canada but there's no i think proof that they're so it. close to the canadian border mm-hmm. that it's sort of like being like oh, yeah, oh well like i'm pissed because yeah. like you got it done yeah. in new york city instead of new jersey mm-hmm. so i don't think it, i don't think they took that too personally okay so it was never actually established whether he had actually received these degrees and if he had from what lodge he had gotten them 
when he moved to Batavia, though, he definitely started going to the lodge and really tried to, like, entrench himself in the group. He visited a number of lodges there and was eager to assist. He made Masonic speeches and took part in others' degrees. So when the companions of Batavia, that is the the group of the Freemasons there in that town, they applied to become a special chapter called the Royal Arch Chapter. And when they applied for this, every member of the group had to sign the petition. And his name is on it. William Morgan's name is on that petition. So he definitely was there and he attempted. I mean, he was really trying to be a part of it. But the, the people inside those lodges were a little suspicious of him. They didn't really believe that he had all of those degrees. They kind of believed that he was hustling them. And as those suspicions really grew and they were applying for this charter, they took his name off of the charter because they really questioned his claims to Masonic membership. So this removal of his name from the charter may have been the incident that set off the next events, which would shape the history of American politics. Oh, boy. In his anger, he decided to vent his frustration on the page. But being illiterate, which was not super uncommon at the time, he went to a local newspaper man named David Cade Miller. Uh, Morgan was threatening to write a tell-all book, exposing all of the secrets of their political connections, rituals, and their secret degree work. David Cade Miller, the writer of the expose, was also a disgruntled former member who had only made it to the apprentice level before his advancement was stymied by members of the local chapter. He was kicked out? He wasn't kicked out, but he was never allowed to advance. How rude. So because he only remained at the apprentice level, he was also pissed off with the Freemason. So he was willing to write the book. I'm sorry, because he was smart? Do you think that like... I, I I couldn't tell you. It seems right? like it's, it was very clicky up yeah. there in this small town oh, in upstate New York. Is, this is, uh, you know, an editor. This is someone that could write a lot of things. This is someone that, right. you know, if anything, you want that kind of person on your side. When you look at some of the people who are Freemasons, so you know that they could read and write. And so it seems interesting to me that, especially in this area, I don't know if it's just because it's in this sort of rural area. I don't know. But that they were like not really into this David Cade Miller. But you... you if he worked for a local, what was it, like newspaper yeah. or a book, if he worked at these kind of outlets. He definitely owned a printing press. You he want that person. wrote for newspapers. Right. Yeah. So Morgan's like, hey, you guys don't want me here? Well, fuck you. I'm going to tell all your secrets. He was kind of a hustler, so he wasn't doing so for free. Let's be clear about that. So along with, he, he had gotten this newspaper man, David Cade Miller, involved and three other men. And altogether, they financially backed this this publication of this book, which was titled Illustrations on Masonry. So Morgan, he, he's not a he's not a quiet man. He's not known to be, you know, super bashful or modest. So he's very loud at bars talking about how he's writing this book about the Masons and talks of his progress on writing the book. Oh, no. And the more he bragged, the more intense the anger of the local Freemasons got and the greater their determination that they should have the expose disappear. Brethren were deeply angered and fearful that their secrets of the Freemasonry would be exposed and that the order would die out. Matters came to a head in September of 1826. They started simply by publishing an advertisement denouncing Morgan for breaking his word. Since Masons placed their hand on the Bible and promised not to reveal the passwords or the grips of the degrees, they felt that by putting this out there and saying that he was like just basically a big fat liar who lies. So by authoring this book, he's really breaking his promise and not only his promise to his fellow people, but his promise to God because he placed his hand on the Bible. 
So things escalated, and an attempt was also made to set fire to Miller's newspaper office and print shop. Oh, Jesus Christ. They're really getting serious. They're super not into this. On September 11th, 1826, Morgan was arrested for supposed non-payment of a loan and allegedly stealing a shirt and tie. And according to laws at that time, you could be held in debtor's prison until restitution was made. And him being held there would have made it more difficult for them to publish the book. So Morgan was jailed in Canandaigua, New York. And when Miller learned of this, he went to the jail and swiftly paid the debt and secured Morgan's release. Because paying off the debt of the shirt and tie is certainly cheaper than the amount of money they're going to make off this book. Mm -hmm. Especially at the time, because Freemasonry is huge yeah huge and it's veiled in secrecy and people are super interested clubs everywhere and people really feel like they're being left out like a lot of people a lot of very powerful people and a lot of very educated people feel super left out and they're really not into the freemasons so there is a lot of this anti-freemason sentiment that's sort of brewing up so this book is gonna make money it's like so, high school, man. Yes. These are it's these like are the little clicks. boys yeah, fighting on the playground. Yes. I want to be part of the group. You can't sit with us is basically. You can't sit with us. The story of the Freemasons, you can't sit with us. Little douches. That's what they said to William Morgan. They're like, you know what? You can't sit with us. So Miller pays the debt and Morgan is released and then very swiftly rearrested and charged with supposedly failing to pay a $2 tavern bill. Oh, shut up. Wow. Anything. They're really. Anything. Yes. $2 tab bill. Yes. Please. So they are really going after him like hardcore. I mean, we were just talking about this. So a $2 tab bill, that's like watching four train cars crash. At 50, at 50 cents a pop, right? So it's not too far off at the same time period. Anyway, so he's in jail again now for this $2 bill. And while the jailer was away, a group of men convinced his wife to release Morgan. They walked him out of the, out of the jail to a waiting carriage, which arrived two days later in Fort Niagara. It's a heist. Shortly afterwards, Morgan disappeared. It's a fucking heist. It's a straight up people heist. So who distracted the guard? The wife. So they didn't even have to distract the <laughs> guard because apparently he had like just left. Walked away. He probably had to pee out back in the outhouse. The way that they talk about it, they make you feel like um, that there's like the jailer and his wife and they live or in like. he was in on it. They live in the front room. He's of, like, oh, let me use the outhouse outside real quick during this time and you can sneak in and take him out. Yeah. But whatever it is, these men convince the wife to let them take him. That is. Fact. Do you think the prisoner guard was a mason? I think that's completely possible. So Morgan disappeared. Never seen again. So what happened to William Morgan, the very loud critic of the Freemasons? Well, most believe and still believe that Morgan was taken by these men in a boat to the middle of the Niagara River and thrown overboard where he presumably drowned. Another theory is that Morgan was paid a large sum of money to simply disappear and give up publication of the book. In October of 1827, a badly decomposed body washed up on the shores of Lake Ontario. Many presumed it to be Morgan, and the body was buried as his. His wife said it was him, and they just buried it and fake said, death. "Fake death." Said fake it's death. William Morgan. Nope. But then there is a lot of speculation that um, some of the details weren't correct in terms of age, facial hair, type of hair. So mm-hmm. many believe that another man—it was actually the body of another man who the wife of a missing Canadian named Timothy Monroe had positively identified the clothing 
that that body was wearing at the time that he disappeared. So many believe that that was actually Timothy Monroe and that he was buried as William Morgan by the government who kind of wanted to make sure that the Freemasons were held Mm -hmm. responsible for this death. So one group of Freemasons denied that Morgan was killed and they claimed that they had paid him $500 to leave the country. There were also rumors that Morgan was reportedly seen later in a number of other countries, but none of those reports have ever been confirmed. 500 bucks? Yep. No. He, he would get more from that. For sure. For, so much more from the book. book. Yeah. So the, the group of investors actually put together what is called a penal bond for $500,000. Give me a, and a million Morgan bucks and I'll walk away. was guaranteed to receive a quarter of the profits. So you're look, ta- definitely talking about more than 500 bucks. Yeah. So there are also accounts that claim that he assumed a new identity in Albany, Canada, and the Cayman Islands. And supposedly in the Cayman Islands, he was hanged as a pirate. There's a lot <laughs> of really crazy. It's not, he is not, William Morgan oh, is not Captain Morgan. He gets around. Man. William he's Morgan not, is he's not, not Captain Morgan. He's not Captain Morgan. <laughs> everyone. <laughs> I didn't even think about that until you said it. I'm just like, wow, this dude gets around. He's everywhere. I went right in there. I was like, wait, hold are up. They, are they saying he's Captain Morgan? Hold up. Remind. Not Captain Morgan. <clears throat> not Captain Morgan. New York Governor DeWitt Clinton, who was also a Mason at the time, offered a $1,000 reward for information about Morgan's whereabouts, but it was never claimed. Eventually, Eli Bruce, the sheriff of Niagara County and a Mason was removed from office and tried for his involvement in Morgan's disappearance. He served 28 months in prison after being convicted of conspiracy for his role in kidnapping Morgan and holding him against his will before his disappearance. Three other Masons, Lawton Lawson, Nicholas Chishibro, and Edward Sawyer, were convicted of taking part in the kidnapping and served sentences. Other Batavia Masons were tried but acquitted. But Morgan's disappearance did not stop what the Masons feared most. And Miller published Morgan's book. Oh, yes. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, Miller. <laughs> the book became an instant bestseller. And because of the notoriety of the events surrounding his disappearance, it was even more popular. Miller did not say that Morgan had been murdered, but rather that he had been carried away. <laughs> But the circumstances of Morgan's disappearance, along with the incredibly lenient punishment that his captors received, led led to public outcry. You see, they were given these super light sentences of like three months to like two and a half years. And no, like, that's it. That's the much anyone did because no one had, there was no body. So they couldn't try them for murder. So they just charged him with the kidnapping and the taking of him by force. Nonetheless, William Morgan became a symbol of the rights of free speech and free press. Protests against Freemasons took place in New York and the neighboring states. Masonic officials disavowed the actions of the kidnappers, but all Masons were left under a cloud of suspicion. The outrage led to calls for public action. Citizens from all over New York State met and declared their intent to stop voting for candidates with Masonic ties. If New Yorkers didn't want to be ruled by the Masons, their most immediate course of action was to vote them out. That sentiment extended to the media as well, as Mason-owned newspapers were boycotted. The fervor in New York slowly made its way around the nation. As early as the next election in 1828, anti-Masonic candidates were winning offices all over the country. Even the sitting president, John Quincy Adams, declared that he had never been and never would be a Mason. 
The Anti-Masonic Party, considered America's first third party, had officially gone national. And in 1830, they became the first political party to hold a presidential nominating convention, a custom eventually adopted by all major American political parties. Unfortunately, though, the party's first national convention would be its last. Infighting over who would nominate and how to expand the party's core platform to other issues rather than just hating the Masons uh, led to its ultimate demise. The anti-Mason party was mostly made up of blue-collar, hardworking Americans that felt Freemasons were elitist. They also thought that Freemasons opposed free speech and religious freedom. The anti-Masons grew very fast and were committed to their cause, and soon they had newspapers, books, and various forms of communication to help to fight against the Masons. In many states, the anti-Mason party was small or had no members at all, but in states like New York and Massachusetts, it was the primary rival against the Democratic Party. The anti-Mason party had a short shelf life, however, and by 1830, the party was absorbed into the Whig Party. That's not to say that the movement was a complete failure, though, because the Morgan Affair, as it became called, and the anti-Mason sentiment that followed, memberships dwindled and the Masonic influence diminished all over the country. Although it still exists, the organization is a shadow of its former self. And in June of 1881, a grave was found in a quarry two miles south of a Native American preservation in Pembroke, New York. In it were bones and a metal tobacco box. Other items included a ring that was inscribed WM. The box contained a crumbled paper. Its few legible words seemed to suggest that the remains might have been Morgan's. That might be his body in the quarry. There are also critics who suggest that this alleged discovery came at a very convenient time, just as they were going to build a monument to Morgan. So, how crazy is that? Like, this, like, crazy Mason murder and... Like, led to, like, a political party getting established. It's bananas. Bananas. Anyway, so that is the story of William Morgan and how one man's hustle changed the political climate of 19th century America. Just another notorious narrative. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, there are a couple of things that you can do to help us out. You can leave a positive review wherever you're listening now. You can also go to patreon.com forward slash notorious narratives, where you can access content that is exclusive for our patrons. And remember, keep it weird and never stop exploring.